Daily news, breaking updates, and exclusive podcasts. iTricks.com Hello and welcome to the iTricks.com Magic Stars podcast for the week ending September 30th, 2010. I'm Justin Robert Young, editor of iTricks.com. In this edition of the program, we're going to bring to you a little interview we did with Rico De La Vega. He's a great performer. We're going to talk all about him and his career and his creative work with Michael Grasso and Cyril. So, uh, you know what, let's stop pussyfooting around. Let's get right into it. Rico joined us from his home in Los Angeles. Joining me on the phone now is a man who is certainly a fantastic performer in his own right, but has also become well-known in a creative capacity for some of the most visible magic of the last five years, most recently with Michael Grasso on America's Got Talent, and on the big scale taking over Asia and and everything else uh, on, on one side of the planet with Cyril Tagiyama. He is Rico De La Vega. Rico, welcome to the Magic Stars podcast. Hey, how's it going? Thank you very much for having me. Oh, man, it is it is good to finally have you on. Like you, you're one of those people that I think the first time that I emailed you about coming on may have been like a year and a half ago, and we've always just kind of right, right. played like email tag back and forth. But now it's it's finally good to have you on. Finally good to be on, brother. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, let, let's talk about what's most uh, fresh. Uh, you were working with Michael Grasso, and certainly, I know for me, it was a surprise that he made it as as far as he did. And I think personally, because I knew the least about him and his, his operation going into the show. But uh, talk to me a little bit about how you got involved with, uh, with, with his America's Got Talent campaign. Well, you know, he went on and he did the... Um audition in new york nailed it did a great job over there then he so, went so, so were you involved the then were you involved at i was the not involved then okay was not involved in the beginning because when he went over to vegas he got knocked out and then he got brought back as a wild card over in la and that's when i jumped on he called me up since i was in la he said hey need your help I'm making this thing work and more than happy to do it for a brother you know now you guys uh were, were both in in uh the them show right the, absolutely yes Yes, he was one of the guys that we casted from our, from our group Magic X to be on our TV show then. Okay. Now, now how, did, how did that come together? How long have you known Grasso? I've known Grasso, geez, it's almost been 15 years now. Holy moly. It's been a while. Where'd you guys meet? Yeah, we go back a long way. We first met when uh, my sister Lisa and I were doing a, uh, a convention over in Minneapolis. I believe it was an IBM convention, I'm not sure, or an SAM convention. Can't even remember. It was that long ago. And he and his brother Joe were there, and... They saw us, and we traded words a little bit, and that was it. And then I ran into him again when he was performing at the Magic Castle, and me and my business partner, Chris Gongora, the other guy that created them and Room 401 and Magic X with me, we looked at Grasso on stage, and Chris is like, well, what about him for Magic X? I'm like, oh, let's do it. All right. Yeah. So since then, we've been on board the whole time. Fantastic. Fantastic. Now, let me ask you this. Since you, you joined with Grasso in, in L.A., and obviously within all bounds of good taste and friendship, if he were to come up to you in a creative capacity uh, right before doing close-up magic in the Las Vegas round, what would your advice to ha- him have been? Uh, and obviously, considering that he wound up getting getting uh, kicked off after uh, after performing it. 
Well, here's the thing. I would have probably said go ahead and do it because Glasso is incredibly skilled. He's ambidextrous with his card minutes. He's sick. He's actually really, really good at it. And I don't know a lot of other people on the planet. There's only a few, and I'm sure you can name all those people, that can do the card minutes ambidextrous. Yeah. And he nailed it. Yeah. It's just sad that the judges didn't think that that was big enough for their scale. But at, at the same time, I think something that, that you have been very, very good with and, and, and one of your talents uh, and the reason why you were in, in, in demand and have been successful in terms of television magic is is you understand that you know the, the, the medium requires a, a certain kind of magic. And, and that's you know the biggest difference between what happened with Grasso before he got kicked off and what happened with Grasso once he got brought back was that understanding of, okay, these things need to play at a certain level. And it's, a, it's certainly something that makes Cyril's television stuff the most compelling that, that kind of happens today, especially street magic-wise. Right, right. So, I mean, yeah, I, I don't know. It, it just, it, it's, it's, it's odd that, that uh, you know, that doing any kind of, and as good as a, a you know, that, that kind of manipulation stuff is, I mean, is there any way for that to have played in a way that the judges would have been like, hey, this is great? You know, I think it would have played great if there was a much bigger audience in there. Okay. You know, if there was more people to play to. Because I'm not sure, don't quote me on this, but I think that he was only playing for the judges and the other contestants that were in the room. That were I, in the I think there was, the there was a very small audience, if I remember correctly. They would, they would cut to, I mean, uh, they, they were not hiding the fact that the, uh, the, the, the theater was mostly empty. But there was, I think, a, a small uh, non-judge audience. I knew that might have been the crew or something. Sure, sure. And the whole thing about it is, you know, the more people that there are, the more people there are to impress. You get more reaction, and that kind of reaction kind of feeds the judges. So it would have been greater. It would have had a much bigger impact to have more people in there. I think that was part of the detriment. And plus, part of the detriment was it was kind of small. It was pretty much on a small scale. And I don't know how far away he was from the judges. But sure, I can see how it wasn't impressive to people who don't understand exactly how that type of manipulation works. How hard, how, how, how real super dedicated you have to be. Oh, completely. I mean, he's been doing card minutes forever, as long as I've known him and, and longer. And so he's well-versed at it. So if people actually stood behind him and saw how, the, how he was doing this stuff, that might have gotten him through, you know? Oh, God, yeah. Well, the other thing that I was thinking is, is you know, I know when, when I was talking to Dan Sperry before he did his first performance, and as well as that went, in my own brain having seen as much talent or uh, magic on America's Got Talent as I had up to that point and he said he was going to do the lifesaver thing I, I personally and I, you know who am I but a guy who runs a blog I'm like well geez you know anything that hasn't been kind of big illusion including something that was very very technically impressive like Grasso's routine just hasn't played and and you know as it turned out getting right up in the judge's face made all the difference you know, and oh and yeah, it, completely, oh, completely, and it, and it kind of you know shorten that field of vision. If all of a sudden the cameras and therefore what's going to be seen in in the home, if he's right, right up next to the judges, they're not going to show the whole stage and him right up next to the judges. They're going to zero in because that's where all the action is. Is is you know oh, four people yeah. in, in a five foot area. Nailed that. Yeah, and Sperry's yeah, right and up there. Dan totally nailed it. So I, I kind of I kind yeah, of would he, wonder he did if everything if, right. I would kind of wonder, yeah, and that's why you know Dan is Dan is Dan, and I'm a guy who runs a magic plug. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, you know, I would kind of wonder if if for Grasso it would have been different 
if he was like, you know, in, in, in Sharon Osbourne's lap doing the kind of stuff that he was doing. You know, if it was, well, it was that was part of the whole thing about it too. Yeah, was we wanted to really break the fourth wall, which is why we, why he did the octagon, Ray Pierce's octagon, and yes. you know, instead of instead of just jumping right in her lap, strolling up and giving her the rose, and really breaking that fourth wall because they, I felt like they wanted him to get closer to them. Yes, and I felt like he needed to, and so that was the way to go with that. Well, and I think that there was certainly a a a personality uh, gap that had to be made up with with Michael compared to the other judges because or sorry the other magic contestants because Dan was the freaky one Antonio had fire and to that point Sawchuck was the guy with the big uh, illusion so you know there there was you know when he came back Michael just kind of seemed like he was the other magician you know but as exactly. soon as as soon as he kind of had well was that something that you were conscious of going into it in a in a creative capacity that you wanted to put more of a, a face and, and bring his personality out a little bit more? That's exactly what we were looking to do. And But the big thing that we wanted to do to separate him from everybody else, which is exactly what you were talking about, Sperry's a freaky guy and he's got that nailed, and Murray's the guy with the big toys, and Antonio's the rock and roll guy. And what we really wanted to nail down was Grasso being the classy guy. Yes. We wanted to nail it, nail it down with him being the guy from, like, dressed like Hugh Jackman in The Prestige. You know, that's why we went that way with Excalibur and really trying to make it classy. And I think that resonated really well. I, I, I certainly, certainly do. And and to me, um, you know, I think Andrew has written written a little bit about this on, on his blog, andrewmain.com, that, you know, in, in a season where there was so much to be learned about performing magic on that show and maybe even magic on television in general, uh, you know, I, I really think the three performances that you and, and Michael came up with and, and Michael executed were, I think, the most informative of, hey, here is a playbook for other magicians to, to come in and use in future seasons. Uh, you know, do, do, you, do you think that, that, that that's the case or am I maybe reading too much into it? No, that's exactly the case. I mean, the whole big thing that we kept talking about the whole time was it's not what you do. It's how you do it. And because you could have anybody else doing the octagon, anybody else doing the fire spiker. But the thing that made Grasso excel and made him go further in the competition was his personality and his style and his class that he exuded within those performances. The whole thing that he really wanted to do was make every piece artful, really artistic. That, so you can see it come through with the, uh, the big background with the red curtains and everything for the octagon and just making it real classy looking and trying to make it a little bit darker, but still avant-garde with the Excalibur, to just really try to instill a lot of art into the performance. Again, it's not what you do, it's how you do it. And I think that's what really helped Michael, because he really didn't need a lot of help on style points. Yeah. He has that style locked down. So that was the thing that pushed him forward, was not being, not being the typical guy doing your illusion from A to B, but it's just getting through that A to B with a lot of style. And he certainly did it. He absolutely did. Uh, but, uh, you know, final America's Got Talent question. I have, I kind of am I'm of the mindset that when the feelers go out, if they have not started already for the next season of America's Got Talent, that the both the producers and the magic industry in general is going to be jonesing. 
to get into this season more than any other. Do you think that that's that's the case, that we're going to see a lot of magicians, if not a lot of bigger-name magicians, maybe with guys who have a stockpile of illusions that they could get through, you know, eight weeks of the show or eight performances? That's the thing. I think it's going to be great. I think there's going to be a gigantic explosion of magic trying to get on that show. I mean, it's a gigantic venue for magic in general, for everybody to be to be interested in magic. The general public, you know, you've got anywhere from 12 to 20 million viewers a week watching that, and that can do nothing but great stuff for everybody involved in our art. Yeah, absolutely. I could not agree more. Now, let's talk about some of the other projects that, that you are heavily involved in. You told me right before we started the interview that you're popping back over uh, – uh, across the Pacific to help uh, your friend Cyril with some more uh, some more TV stuff? Absolutely. He's still doing his thing over there, still blowing up over there. And as much as uh, as much as they keep throwing at him, he keeps knocking it down. So he's going to be doing another Japanese television special, and pretty soon we're going to go into production for another one of his AXN um, All Across Asia specials. So okay. that's going to be another three, three episodes. So one Japanese one, three um, Asia all over Asia episodes uh, coming next year. So what what is what is the reach for 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 AXN for us us uh, you know uh, sheltered Americans? Uh, how how much uh, uh, you know how how many households are you looking at? Like what is the distribution map for that? It's pretty big. Asia covers. Uh, I mean, AXN covers all of Asia from India to Korea to China to Hong Kong. Everything it covers every Asian market and oh, wow. some European markets. Yeah, so it's pretty gigantic. It is a pay channel, so it's like a cable channel, the cable network, and that's where we got into them because we're starting to look for alternative in, um, uh, original programming. And, you know, met with some people. Cyril met with some people over at AXN and just knocked them off their feet, and they're like, we want to do a show with you. And he's like, yeah, let's do it. And then he brought me on, and so we've been knocking it out ever since. So when you're doing something like that, I mean, do you have to be mindful of, of, of the language gap? Or, or do you, you just do it in, in one language and just assume that everybody from India to Korea is going to be able to uh, understand it? Well, that's the thing. When it comes to AXN, a lot of their broadcast is pretty much English broadcast. Okay. A whole lot of it. And so it was never a concern um, having uh, Cyril go straight into English-speaking um, TV shows. He was a little uncomfortable with it at first, but he, that was his first language, so he, he did great with it. He's obviously more comfortable speaking in Japanese, but that's when we have to be most mindful is when he's doing his Japanese program, making sure that, well, it's basically making sure he's comfortable in both places, you know, both in English-speaking market and Japanese-speaking market. He's got no problem with either of those. It's kind of tough sometimes with the language barrier, like when we're going over to China, it's going to be a little yeah. difficult, but the nice thing about magic is that you really don't need language to understand what's going on. Yes. It's one of those art forms that really transcends language barriers like dance or music magic is a big one of those now there was there was a point we did a we did a live uh q a with uh chris angel on joe monty's live stream last night and there was something that, that he brought up and i was very very glad that, that chris from somebody in his position mentioned because it's something that i don't feel that the general magic public fully understands and i'd like to get your opinion on it if you are doing okay. a large amount of magic, like Cyril has done, and and you know to a a slightly lesser uh, extent, what Chris has done on Mind Freak for six seasons or whatever, just in terms of time you have to fill, 
It is an insane amount of magic to come up with, to A, conceive, to B, uh, you know, get get ready to shoot, and then B, to shoot on a schedule and, and a budget. You know, at some point, as, as a creative guy who's, you know, obviously you guys want to be as successful as you possibly can be. You want to book as many gigs as possible. If you could do eight specials in, in, in a year, you would you would happily sign up to do it. But at some point, it's got to be taxing to, to come up with new stuff and specifically new stuff that people are going to look at and be like, wow, this is so much better than the old stuff. <laughs> yeah, it is taxing. It is tiring and it's ridiculously difficult. You know, Cyril's done, what, 14, 16, two-hour specials in Japan? Yeah. And we thought we were done with all of that by number two. He's like, oh, they want me to do a third one. We're like, well, we're out of material. Yes. And, you know, we the cupboard is, is dry. It's bare. Exactly. So we've got a bunch of people that, um, you know, they, they uh, pitch their magic ideas to us, and they say, hey, you know, maybe this would be good for something for Cyril to do. And so we've got an inflow, a constant inflow of magic material coming into us, which is fantastic. You know, everybody wants us to do something or even some of their stuff, which we love. And yeah. it's just that sometimes it doesn't match into serial personality or into the environment. But again, yeah, it all, it all boils down to with as much magic as, as Angel has done, as much, with as much magic as Cyril has done, it all boils down to it's not what you do, it's how you do it. Yes. So that's why there are some simpler tricks in there. There's some simpler magic tricks, but it's all in the presentation. And the thing that we've done with Cyril, if you look at a lot of his stuff, we'd always try to put a one, two, three on things to where he's not just doing one single effect. We'd find three effects that all go into each other and make that part of the story. Yeah. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And, And the hardest thing about it is just trying to make sure that it fits every situation and not trying to force the situation. Because what I've always said We've said this on Zam, we've said this on Room 401. It's magic is most believable when you place it in a situation that allows it to be believable. And that's when it's got the most impact on an audience. It's when it's accessible to believability. That's the hardest thing to get, to get through because there are a gajillion magic tricks out there. Not a lot of them are really applicable in real-world situations. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it, it's walking that line that I assume is, is the most challenging, is, is finding something that is fantastic, yet would fit, at least the beginnings of it, fit into reality, you know, so it's not just immediately yeah. rejected. Yes. And um, it, the tough thing is just trying to find that material, get it acceptable into the environment. And sometimes, sure, sometimes you got to force the environment, you know, sometimes you got to push it into hey, look, there's, there's a place that's smoking hookah. Let's do something with uh, the smoking glass effect. And yeah. so, sure, it's kind of forcing that, but it's also in line with that, with that environment. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, that's that the, other, and the other thing that I think, in, in general, uh, people probably don't understand, and not for any lack of uh, you know, education or anything, it's just something that I think you either know or you don't, is the difficulty of shooting something on a budget and on a schedule, you know, <laughs> yeah, there is, Oh uh, God. Yeah. You know, for, for those of you, and you can obviously speak to it probably mu- in much, much, much greater detail than I can, but you know, um, imagine. Yeah. That's... Yeah. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I mean, imagine like, someone says, okay, you have to do, uh, you have to do a show and uh, we're not going to tell you exactly when it is until maybe a month, you know, before it goes. 
And then uh, you have to get it all done in this amount of time or else, you know, we're just going to run with, with, with whatever you have. It doesn't matter if you screwed up three times. We're going to try and piece together the best trick that we can out of the three times that you didn't do it and weren't happy with it. You know, it's just it's sure, it, yeah. getting, getting good under those pressures. So now you have to get really, really good at ramping up for a trick and then performing it in a time when everyone's watching you, the pressure's on, and you only have X amount of time to do it. <laughs> We only do get X amount of time to do it. And, but the thing that we do with serial shows is that if we have a two-hour special in Japan, we'll film like three and a half hours worth of footage. Yes. So some of the stuff never makes it to air, which we will recycle for maybe the next special. We'll put it on hold for next for the next special, which is great. But we always film more than we have to. And with that, people don't actually realize how hard it is because they don't see all of that stuff that happened that didn't make it to air. Yeah. They don't see all the time constraints and the budget restraints and, and the, the audience restraints. I mean, we would have to set something up, do it for an audience, and if it fails, we'd have to wait to, to recycle a new audience. We'd have to wait for another crowd to come in. Yeah. You know, so it's, there's a lot to it that a lot of people can see. And I know there's a lot of people out there that are like, oh, yeah, I could do that. And sure, maybe you could. But there's a lot of things out there that people just don't realize and Joe Monty will be able to attest to that. There's so much that goes into it that people do not see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you know, it's kind of it's kind of sad because obviously you guys work very very hard to get a finished product out here that that you know is is designed to look effortless. You know, it's designed to look like you know Cyril and 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 Chris Angel and David Blaine are just we're just walking down the street and then all of a sudden, boom, magic happens. You know, uh, <laughs> completely. So it, it, it designed to look effortless, but at the same time. It's like, like, oh, my God, you have no idea how much effort has gone into all of this. <laughs> it's so, there's so much effort. In some of the specials, you can actually piece together, like some of the serial specials, you can see us getting more and more tired oh, as really? everything is going on. <laughs> yeah, so if you see where he's most tired, that was probably the last thing that we were filming. Wow. <laughs> it's, it's, we really get close to zero sleep. Sometimes we pull, like, the longest we've pulled was a three hour, uh, three days straight, almost with maybe fifteen minute naps in the vans and stuff. So yeah, it is it is taxing. It is really really difficult, especially on their schedule and stuff. But the nice thing about filming in Japan is that it's a nice thing and it's a tough thing. In Japan, they don't have the unions that we have over here. Ah. You know, the unions over here, they're like, okay, lunch, everybody breaks and drop what you're doing and go go eat some food or Day is over, everybody go home. Yeah. So in Japan, they're all about get it done, and I don't care how long it takes. And we are working around the clock to make that stuff work. And sometimes, like the night shots, we'll go straight into the morning. Wow. Holy moly. Now, yeah. you, you've, you've mentioned and, a few times. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no. It's just that the Japanese work, work ethic is insanely, ridiculously cool. They're all about just getting it done and getting it done right, no matter how long it takes. And that, that is something that, you know, from people that I've known that have been in those situations, the last thing that you want to do if you are, you know, if you feel like you're one or two takes away from getting something perfect is to have, you know, you know that, that time hit and everyone to say, all right, well, we'll pack it up. Sorry, we'll, we'll fix it in post. You know, you, you want to <laughs> yeah. just be able to bang it out. Yes, and that's exactly it. And we got that luxury also when we crossed over into the AXN shows. The producers over there, the executive producers, were like, however long it takes, just get it done right. 
Just and go. that was, that's an incredible, incredible blessing compared to over here where you are locked in a schedule and there's no way around it. Now, uh, obviously the, the union and, and the production elements are, are one part of it, but you've mentioned room 401 and totally hidden extreme magic or them, uh, Considering that you've worked on television both in, in Asia and uh, several times here in, in America in various capacities, what do you think the biggest thematic differences are uh, between an Asian magic audience and an American magic audience? I think American magic audience are, audiences are much more savvy in the sense that, I mean, no disrespect to Asian audiences or anything like that, but I think that um, American audiences are kind of they have more hecklers to it more more people that dissect illusions and dissect magic tricks and they're not really out just for the entertainment they're out to figure out how it's done or oh that was kind of a cool trick without actually seeing all, the whole package that's wrapped around it yeah. whereas in asia i believe that they accept the whole package that's wrapped around it and that makes it a lot easier for them it's all it makes them a lot more palatable it makes magic a lot more palatable to the asian audiences I think they just really, really love magic, and they they really want to see more, regardless of um, how much they've already seen. They just love magic, and that's the difference between here and there, between America and Asia, is that America is a little bit more stickler. They're a little bit harder to please. And, you know, you saw how that is with AGT, you know. Magic, you know, American audiences are really hard to please with magic. If they yeah. weren't, then there'd be champions, there'd be first place uh, magicians on AGT all the time. Yes. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. It is. It is a hard. Uh, no. You. You are held to the same standard as somebody who just needs to learn a song. You know. You know. The, a, a, a performer. <laughs> exactly. A performer who has to choreograph his own thing, make the effect work, make sure the prop works, make sure the props there on time, make sure that all the directors and lighting people know all the cues so everything looks good and isn't exposed on television, make sure your dancers can hit their marks, make sure the pyro's uh, you know, set up, and that's competing with somebody who just needs to remember lyrics and hit notes. You know? And to bring the guitar. And to bring their guitar. <laughs> Don't forget the guitar. And if you forget the guitar, make sure that you have somebody else who can give you a guitar. Exactly. But no disrespect to them. The guys over there, I mean, there was a sick bunch of talent on that show. I really wasn't paying attention to it when I first got there. Yeah. I was just paying attention to Michael's, Michael's effect. But then when I sat back and I watched everything, I'm like, holy crap, there is a lot of talent here. Like Studio One Young Bee Society, they're a sick bunch of dancers. Yeah. You know, and that's an amazing amount of talent. I mean, Michael Grimm, the guy who won, he's got an amazing voice, super nice guy, and just crazy amount of talent. It's just sad that there's not different platforms for magic versus dance or music. Because there's already platforms for singers. There are already platforms yeah, for Yeah, well, you know, I'll tell you what. Up until this season, you know, if you are a producer and you're watching America's Got Talent, I don't know if you see the justification to have a magic-only talent show or a magic-only reality show. Um, That's the thing. Know. I don't think it would sustain itself. I yeah. really don't think it would sustain itself. Now, I think maybe next season we see a lot of people who kind of, you know, wake up, smell the coffee and say, oh, like, oh, oh, wait a minute. You know, if I if I just take all my effects that are structured like this or I alter them to structure them like this or I realize that, hey, look, these guys are taking very, very complex illusions and they are cutting them down to a minute and a half. You know, it's not like everything that does take five minutes needs to take five minutes. Um, sure. 
you know, then then uh, we we might, you know, we might be opening, we might be coming into an age like that. But yeah, I, I don't, I don't necessarily think that we're there, we're there just yet. <laughs> Not just yet, yeah, because American audiences, you know, everybody wants to see everything really quick. They want us to hurry up and get to the magic, you know. Don't want to see a lot of uh, dancing girls and a lot. Don't want to hear a lot of talk. But they just want to see the effect, and that's been a gigantic detriment to magic because everybody feels like they need to speed things up and make it happen right away, which is great. I mean, again, American audiences are savvy that way, and the, the attention span of somebody watching Magic is like a four-year-old with a full diaper. They don't have the time to sit through all the stuff that we loved to watch growing up, all the handing stuff and the Copperfield stuff, all the theatrics that went into it. That kind of stuff really sells the Magic, but people aren't really attuned to watching that. Yeah, yeah. Now, uh, let, let me let me ask you: Is is there any plan to do anything else on on American television in the vein of uh, them or, or Room Four Hundred One? We are always looking to put new stuff out on the air, and Magic is a real tough sell on TV right now. And I don't know. Hopefully, it's going to open up a little bit with yeah. lots of success. And, um, Jeez, not not in yeah, Britain. Britain, definitely... Britain just uh, just greenlit their their second uh, magic performance show this week. Yeah, I know. America needs to hurry up and catch up. I know. What the hell? <laughs> we got like fifty thousand more channels. <laughs> what the I mean, they've got one in India. They've got like a, I think it's India. They've got a magic competition reality show. But again, I don't think it's palatable to American audiences. No, no. Because no. with as much with as much magic as everybody would be able to get, you'd see a lot of good magic. You'd also see a lot of really bad and awful magic. Yeah. Which doesn't mean that people are necessarily bad performers or are doing bad magic tricks. It's just that it doesn't come across right. And that kind of thing can be seriously detrimental to everything, to everybody in our profession. Because if somebody sees one bad performance, then they're going to attribute that to every magician that they'll ever see in the future. So that's the hard part. No matter how good or bad a magician is, if they fuck up one time, that's the hard thing. It's bad for everybody. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, you know, it, it is it is the career in which so many uh, of, of the folks who read this site uh, have chosen, and certainly one where you are a very proficient practitioner. My friend Rico De La Vega has been my guest here on the Magic Stars podcast. Rico, if uh, people want to stay in touch with you and, and, and Magic X as, as a whole and Cyril, uh, where can they uh, find new information? You can find all of Cyril's information on his website, CyrilMagic.com. You can find everything about Magic X. Uh, best place to go there is either through the Magic X MySpace page, which nobody goes to MySpace anymore, but the most <laughs> there right now, MySpace.com slash Magic X Live, and also the Facebook page, Magic X Live slash Magic X Live. Also, there's a MagicXLive.com that people can go to. Not up to date, but that soon will be with all the stuff that's going on. But there's always announcements going out. Where you, guys, you guys have like 50 members everybody. now. What's that? You guys have like 50 members to, to Magic X. Last time I looked, you guys had like 13 people. Then all of a sudden, there's 75 people on, on your on your Facebook page. <laughs> exactly. It started out as 10, which was the original reason for the X. Yes. It was the Roman numeral. 10. Oh, there we go. Okay. So that was, yeah, that was the original reason for the Magic X. Also, it was, a, it was like an experiment, and it was an experience, and X was the factor that you drop into every equation to find the answer. There was all these different reasons for the X. But originally, there were 10 members. Now we've expanded to about 15, and we're yes. always looking to add more people to that. 
what are you guys doing? Like franchising? Like do you have to like like pay dues to the home office and you get you get magic X on your business card? <laughs> Basically everybody who, who comes into our group is all about helping each other. Our group, um, whenever somebody needs something, they'll call the other Xers and we'll all help out. No cost. We're not competing against each other. Nobody in our group competes against each other. Everybody in our group helps each other. So, and all of our ideas that we all generate as a collective becomes part of that collective and is open to anybody else in our group. So that's the difference with, uh, with what we're doing is we're constantly just trying to help each other at zero cost. Now, let me ask you this. What do you think the chances are that somebody else from the 15 that are on the Magic X Facebook page shows up on America's Got Talent next year? I don't think that would be actually impossible to believe. But, um, yeah, everybody's talked about it. Some people are not about it. And, you know, uh, big ups and to Grasso for having the balls to get on a program like that. All the guys, Antonio, Dan Sperry, I mean, it takes balls to go in front of that many people live. Yeah. You know, it's not something that I would do. It's not something that I would necessarily do. So it does take balls, and I don't have those kind of balls. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, no matter how, no matter, no matter what the relative status of your balls, we are very, very happy that Rigo <laughs> Delavega has joined us on iTricks. Uh, talk to you soon, pal. Thanks a lot, Justin. iTricks.com.